0: Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for July 22nd 2020. As always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, listening to the program. If you enjoy these interviews, please check out Foreign Exchanges' website, fx.substack.com. Uh, Consider signing up to our free email list and get access to these uh, podcasts, these interviews, and uh, regular updates on international affairs, U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Or consider becoming a subscriber, supporting the project. Uh, You get access to even more updates, uh, essays, weekly chat sessions, uh, all kinds of goodies. More podcasts, lots more podcasts. Um, uh, with that said, uh, today, this week, uh, we are going to, uh, take a little step back in time. Um, many of you are probably aware, uh, maybe most of you are aware that we recently passed the 70th anniversary of the start of the Korean War, uh, on June 25th, in fact. Uh, and what I wanted to do here today was, uh, talk about the origins, the start uh, of the Korean War, and I'm going to be joined here in a few moments by Owen Miller, who's a lecturer in Korean studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Uh, he researches and teaches on the history of modern Korea, uh, and he wrote a, a piece for Jacobin uh, around the, the 70th anniversary that uh, was called Uncovering the Hidden History of the Korean War, Uh, It dealt primarily with uh, what the war did to Korean civilians, the impact that it had, especially in North Korea, Um, but it also touched on uh, some of the the kind of root causes uh, of the war, Uh, and that's the subject I want to spend most uh of our time here today talking about uh we we will hopefully have time to get into some of the impacts that the war had uh, on the korean people but i want to really get into what were the kind of underlying causes of the war I don't know about the rest of you, uh, but for me and, and maybe for, you know, uh, at least the, the other folks listening who are in the United States uh, who haven't gone out of their way to learn about the Korean War, uh, the origins of the war, the kind of causes, the the underpinnings of the war uh, for, for me are not something that we I really ever discussed uh in a in a history course or anything like that um, you sort of get the uh, ve- very bare bones um uh, story that at the end of World War II, the Soviet Union occupied Northern Korea, the U.S. occupied Southern Korea, these eventually became two separate states, and then uh, yada yada, eventually North Korea invaded South Korea and there was a war. Uh, you don't really hear much more than that. Uh, there's a reason, you know, for there's a reason I think we call the, uh, sometimes call the Korean War the Forgotten War, because it's really not uh, at the forefront of the consciousness of uh, of most Americans. Um, there's there's a lot more to it than that, and just my kind of meager understanding and, and the, the little bit of uh, work I've been able to put into sort of trying to better understand uh, the causes of the war, there's a lot more to it than uh, just sort of this... Unexamined partition at the end of World War II, which we don't even ask why it happened or whether this was a a natural thing to have happened. Um, and so, uh, I'm going to talk to to On Miller here, and we're going to get into really some of the uh, the underlying features of of uh conditions in Korea prior to the partition. Uh, we're going to talk about the partition itself and whether um, you know what kind of impact that had uh, on Korea. Uh, and we'll talk about sort of the uh, forerunner, you know, kind of the early uh, period of communist activity in South Korea that predated uh, the start of the war and really I think feeds uh, sort of right into, uh, the start of the war, so um, I'm hoping this will be an illuminating conversation uh, for me, at least, and hopefully for many of you. Uh, and as I say, depending on time, once we get through sort of the uh, a better understanding of the start of the war, uh, I would, I will, uh, hopefully, we'll have time to talk about what the war did uh, to the Korean people and the the kind of uh, pain and suffering it caused. Again, for somebody in the U.S., the the 20th century Cold War... Uh, conflict that gets the most attention is, of course, Vietnam. Uh, and I, I, it's not to diminish the Vietnam, the Vietnam War or the impact that, that it had. Uh, but I think we tend to lose sight of just how devastating the Korean War was. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful we'll be able to to talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, so with all that said, as sort of a preview of, of what's coming here, I will uh, uh, get Owen Miller on the line and we'll get started with the interview. Okay, I am being joined by Owen Miller, a lecturer in Korean studies uh, at SOAS at the University of London. Uh, He teaches and researches the history of modern Korea, uh, and he is joining us to help us better understand uh, the origins of the Korean War and the impact that the Korean War had uh, on the people uh, living there, which are two things that I think... um, Get lost in the the discussion to the extent that there is a discussion uh, of the Korean War. Oh, and thank you for uh, being here, and thanks for uh, for talking to me.
1: Hello, yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh,
0: you wrote a piece at Jacobin. I mentioned this in the introduction to the show, but you wrote a piece at Jacobin called "Uncovering the Hidden History of the Korean War," uh, which was uh, written around the time of the 70th anniversary on June 25th. Uh, I'll link to that piece in the the show description. But um, I wanted to uh, have you on to kind of give us a better sense of how the Korean War came about. Um, Speaking from my own experience, and I suspect the the experience of a lot of folks uh, in the U.S. at least, um, the story that you get about how the Korean War started uh, is basically limited to uh, World War One ended. The Soviet Union occupied northern Korea. The U.S. occupied southern Korea. And then uh, yada yada. Some time passed, and North Korea invaded South Korea. And there you go. Uh, there's no real deeper kind of interrogation of what went on. And so uh, I wonder. I, I wanted uh, you know to really, if you could really get us into like the beginnings of this, which my understanding is, I mean you have to really even go back to uh the japanese occupation of korea to understand where uh you know the resistance was led by kim il sung and some you know some of the the future kind of communist uh north korean leaders while the future South Korean government formed a, a government in exile in China uh, and you know if you could kind of give us a, a a sense of where this all starts uh, and if it's not with the Japanese occupation please feel free to correct me but okay. uh you know get get us get us kicked off in that way
1: okay yeah I mean I think that's a i think that is a fair point to make I mean i'll come back to that issue about the the Japanese colonial period in a second but just to say I think you know, the most obvious sort of more immediate source of the, the Korean War is really the the partition of uh, the country in 1945 by the two sort of emergent superpowers after the Second World War. And, you know, I mean, that's that's a fairly well-known story, but there's a bit more to it than that. and And it's also those five years following, between 1945 and 1950, in which this civil war um, stroke international war is brewing and developing and in some ways um, there are those who have argued that it did not actually begin in 1950 it had already begun it had already begun say in 1948 with the jeju uprising in south korea and other events so it's that 45 50 period which is most crucial and that's the period that uh the historian um bruce cummings you know famously concentrated on on his uh, in his original work um the origins of the korean war but he's also one of the people who has argued that you have to go back further and you have to look at the uh the colonial period and for some of the roots of the korean war um you know i i personally would say i have some differences with with his position but i'm going to say that I agree with you know maybe three quarters of it or something uh, and but he, he tends to push the idea that 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 this was primarily a civil war which then outside parties the US the Soviet Union Chinese got involved in and that that civil war has its roots in the division of the nationalist movement during the colonial period uh, and the nationalist movement uh, um, in the colonial period was it was a, was a messy business it was a diasporic movement a lot of the time because the japanese repression in the colony was was very severe and <clears throat> as with many you know nationalist movements they end up having their headquarters elsewhere because they they cannot operate in the colon- the colonized country and that was true of the the korean Uh, movement, and it it was not just diasporic, it was then split into many different um, approaches. You had, of course, communists, and you had uh, more right-wing nationalists, and you had various different shades in between, and you had anarchists as well, and all kinds of different um, Korean nationalist movements, many of them operating in China, in Japan, um, in in Far Eastern um, Russia, and in Manchuria. and so on. So you have this, this splintered nationalist movement. Uh, and as you mentioned in the introduction just now, within that, of course, you had uh, um, uh, communists and you had more sort of mainstream nationalists who did indeed have a kind of um, uh, government in exile based in Shanghai and then later uh, in Tongqing. Um, but the the, even the, 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 the communist movement itself was even splintered. So, I mean, the communist movement was uh, located in four or five different diasporic locations, none of which really knew much about each other, had different views of the world. And um, this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, in the late 40s and early 50s, um, the, the, the communists in North Korea were, were quite factionalized. And um, anyway, that's another story. But yes, the, the, the hangover from the colonial period was that um, different elements of the nationalist movement uh, were favored by um, the, the U.S. occupiers in the south and the Soviet occupiers in, in their northern zone. And um, the Soviets basically found one particular communist. He's only one of a number of different um, sort of factions of communists represented by Kim Il-sung who had been a uh, a partisan fighting the Japanese alongside Chinese communists in Manchuria during the '30s, and he was well known to, or quite well known to the Russians, because he had ended up in the in the '40s, in the early 1940s, in the Soviet Far East and become a officer an officer in the Red Army, and that's why they brought him back, uh, you know, as their sort of chosen leader in September. Um, 1945 but likewise in the south um, the americans found a man that they were quite familiar with who had been ex- in exile in the u.s um, that's um singman ri um, and they uh, you know eventually helped to put him in power uh, as the leader in the south the whole the real story obviously is quite a lot more complicated than that but essentially the two superpowers chose their favored uh, leaders um, and their favored leaders were really from opposite sides of the nationalist spectrum during the colonial uh, period.
0: You mentioned the the sort of fragmentization uh, of the communist resistance during the the Japanese period and the rise of uh, Kim Il Sung, which is something you touched on uh, in your Jacobin piece. That that sort of Kim Il Sung yeah. was not inevitably going to be the leader of North Korean communists. He was chosen uh, basically because he was uh, familiar to the Soviets. I wonder maybe if you could talk a little more about um, sort of how fragmented the communist resistance really was and what was the sort of process by which, um, you know, Kim Il-sung kind of consolidated uh, or it was consolidated for him, maybe. I don't know if that's a more accurate way to say it uh that that he kind of emerged at the top of the 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 hierarchy so to speak
1: right yeah i mean so it's conventionally said that there were four factions of korean communists at the time of liberation from japanese colonial rule in 1945 and those were the four factions who kind of came back to, uh, to Korea in both North and but, but mainly in, in, in North Korea but to some extent in South Korea and were competing for to some extent for power within um, the communist forces there so those four factions were one um, this sort of uh, partisan or guerrilla faction around um, Kim Il-sung who had fought in Manchuria in the 30s Then you had uh, what's often referred to as the domestic faction. These were communists who had remained and had been active in South Korea in the 20s and 30s. But most of them had been jailed by the by the Japanese for long periods of time. They emerged out of the prisons in in um, August 1945. and a very prominent among those was a man called Park Hong Yong, who perhaps would have been the more obvious leader of the Korean um, communist movement at liberation if the Soviets had not maneuvered um, uh, Kim Il-sung into place, and if it were not for the fact that Park Hong Yong was based in the south, he was based in Seoul, he was based in the south, so in a sense the Soviets couldn't put him <laughs> at the forefront of the communist movement because they were not in control of that part of the country. Uh, The third faction is uh, often called the Yanan faction. These were these were Chinese China based uh, Korean communists who had been members of the Chinese Communist Party. They'd fought alongside Mao. They'd been in Yanan, which was Mao's base in in Western China uh, during the fight against the Japanese. And uh, so they came back to Korea as well in large numbers. they obviously steeped in the Chinese Communist tradition. They had lots of experience of real fighting and and, and you know warfare. The fourth faction were the what are called the Soviet Korean Soviet uh, Koreans and so um, Soviet faction. These were Koreans who often were, were naturalized Soviet citizens. Uh, so you know you have to take into account that that Korean um, migration to. Russia as it was and then later the Soviet Union had been going on since probably about the 1860s or 1870s So there's quite a big uh, Korean diaspora in the Soviet Union and many of them were in the Communist Party Many of them were quite prominent prominent communists and they were brought back um, With the occupation forces in in August September 1945 and they formed a separate faction as well Um, So yes, you had this complicated picture and out of this the Soviets Chose uh, Kim Il Sung. It wasn't very, you know, obviously it wasn't straightforward. They hadn't planned this um, in a sort of conspiratorial, fa- um, uh, in a conspiratorial way before they uh, arrived to occupy the northern occupation zone. But quite quickly, in sort of September, October, November of 1945, they began to maneuver Kim Il Sung into position. I think they recognized fairly early on when he came back to the country. In September 45 that he would make a good leader and that he would be a more reliable leader than the um, the nationalist leader that they had sort of nominally put in that leading position man Kuchul Um and so by January 1946 he was already in effectively the leading Korean within the administration there was officially a, a Soviet military administration was running the, the, the zone the territory but they had already, basically, by January, put him in charge of the Provisional People's Committee. So it was quite a quick process by which they decided that he was the man uh, that they wanted in charge of North Korea.
0: When the the partition happened, and this is one of these um, one of the parts of the story that I feel like uh, it's almost maddening the degree to which we don't think about it like if you're if you're just a lay person you're not uh really studying korean history or studying the korean war you don't uh you're not really challenged to even think about um the fact that you know this this geographic partition was created um, is sort of treated as this kind of inevitable, natural thing, like, oh, well, you know, the Soviets occupied one part of the country, the U.S. occupied the other. It just, you know, it was just uh, obvious that it was going to have to be partitioned. Um, was there any basis apart from uh, the, the dueling occupations for dividing Northern Korea from Southern Korea? Was there any historical... Um, you know, kind of legitimacy to this, my sense is there was not. Um, I think the fact that you know you you still to this day hear about,, uh, you know, families that were separated by the the partition indicates that it was not. Um, but, you know, it, correct me if I'm wrong. And then if you could talk about what that partition did uh, to the Korean people and what a, you know, kind of a shock uh, it was uh, to Korea, um, you know, kind of talk about what the uh, the implications were.
1: Yeah, there's no no historical basis to it. Of course, Korea, like most countries, has different regions and regional differences and divisions and so on. But um, but no, there's no there's no basis for a north south uh, division um, of any of any kind. Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of what it. How it came. I mean, I could say something briefly about how it came about. I, you know, this was this was to some extent being discussed already in, I think, I think about 43, 44. Uh, I can't off the top of my head remember the exact historical sequencing, but there were a number of meetings of the Allies during the during the during the time of the war when they would, began to discuss what would happen at the end of the war when they presumably won so you had meetings in cairo in tehran most famously in in early 45 in yalta um you know where they where you had stalin and and, uh, roosevelt and churchill and and they did in a number of these meetings begin to mention korea it wasn't their main focus they were mainly focused on what was going to happen in europe at the end of the war but they they did mention korea it was mentioned fairly early on in one of these meetings that there may have to be something called a trusteeship over uh, over Korea. So this is where the, this is where the origins of the partition lie. I think really, it's in some ways I often think it's a bit parallel to what happened after the First World War and the kind of carving up of the Middle East by by European powers. Um, but it's this idea, like the mandate idea, that um, you know a, a country like this, well, we're going to save it from Japanese colonialism, but but the Koreans surely can't govern themselves properly yet they need to be they need to be under the tutelage of greater powers for some time maybe five years maybe longer Um, there was a term used at one of these meetings uh, which was that the the Koreans would not have independence immediately after uh, the end of the war and liberation but in due course this was a this is now kind of a quite a infamous phrase among historians of modern korea in due course they could have independence so i think that's where it comes from it comes from this kind of condescending imperialist idea essentially that a smaller um you know uh, subaltern country like korea could not have its own independence and govern itself just yet right then then there's the the partition also comes from a sort of much much less considered Origin as well, which is at the at the end of the um, Pacific War when Japan surrendered. It all happened quite quickly, right? The, the two nuclear uh, bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, and then suddenly, you know, well not suddenly, but but quite rapidly, events um, unfolded. Stalin joined the war against Japan. Russian troops began to march through Manchuria and and then into northern korea even before the japanese emperor surrendered on the 15th of august and at that point the americans realized wow okay we're busy worrying about occupying japan you know finally getting the surrender and occupying japan but the russians are about to you know walk into or already are walking into northern korea and are about to occupy the whole peninsula we cannot let that happen so that was the panicked moment around about the 12th of august when they decided to propose to Stalin a, a line of, uh, of division between two occupation zones, and this infamous moment when they they found a line on a map at the 38th parallel to to propose to Stalin. Uh, and of course, one of the one of the questions actually comes up with my students every year when we study this, and and it's and it's still asked by historians: is why did Stalin accept this? Um, I'm not sure we know 100% for sure, but certainly I think at that point Stalin was keen to be cooperative with the U.S. He didn't feel ready to go into a confrontation with the U.S. Uh, But certainly the Soviets were in a position where they could have if they wanted to occupied the whole of the uh, Korean peninsula. Uh, In terms of your the second part of your question was about what what effect it's had. Well, of course, yes, I mean, it's like any many of these kind of partitions um are both tragic and absurd right you know and in the way that they divide up uh, communities families um, and, and so many other things uh you know I, I remember hearing the, uh, a story not that long ago about you know one particular farmhouse in, in Ireland that's divided by the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic but, you know this I mean I don't know of any quite such absurd stories in Korea but of course it just it 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 is arbitrary and and has caused untold tragedies on top of the, the the brutality of the war itself
0: we've talked about sort of the the rise of one side of this conflict and the the kind of coalescing of the communists under kim il sung um can we talk about the the other side of this and how did how did singman ri Rhee- uh, kind of emerge? Um, how did the Republic of Korea government uh, emerge? My understanding is uh, it goes back to sort of the the government in exile in nationalist China during the occupation. But then, uh, as you say, the United States sort of plucked uh, Sigmund Rhee, kind of identified him as their man uh, in the South. Can you talk a little bit about how that process happened?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- th- as with as with the North, it, it's by no means the case that it was inevitable that Singh Manri would be the, uh, the leader, or even the leader chosen by the Americans. The Americans at various points were extremely unhappy with him and tried to find other people uh, who they might be able to get on better with or who might be able to be more popular with the, the, the Korean population as well. Uh, but they ultimately were unsuccessful and ended up with... Uh, Sing Ri, um, and of course, he continued to be in many ways a thorn in their side in you know through the Korean War and afterwards as well. But, um, yeah, you know, as what's the saying? I don't know, there's that hoary old saying about he was he was a bastard, but he was their bastard, or something like that. Um, <laughs> I, heard that kind of, I think you know, ultimately, they they went with him, um, and he's and, and in, in certain ways that he served their interests quite well. But yeah, I mean, in the early stages, there were a number of other important nationalist uh, figures um, across the spectrum. I mean, there were some of them right-wing nationalists, some of them more left-wing nationalists. I mean, an example of the latter would be someone like um un Hyong, who was a very popular um, nationalist figure. He had been involved in the provisional government, but he was also he had also considered himself a socialist um, for much of his life. He was a sort of left-leaning nationalist and um yeah he was quite an important figure in the in the early years of, of the early stages of the us occupation but he was assassinated in 47 um quite possibly uh, with the involvement of of singman rhee um and another major nationalist figure also assassinated in the late 1940s was kim gu possibly more famous and more kind of um uh you know, better, better rated um, nationalist hero and independence fighter, Kim Gu, again, was also assassinated. So you had various, you know, it was, it was a very messy process, various different um, nationalist figures. And of course, in the South, you also had a very major communist um, organization and lots of support for communists in the South, um, which led to a number of of big strikes, uprisings, and culminating in the biggest uprising of all, which was the Jeju uprising in, um, in 1948 to 49, which led to a, to a huge massacre of people on, on Jeju Island by uh, Syngman Rhee's counterinsurgency forces with the aid of the Americans. In some ways, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, that event is perhaps, can be seen as the beginning of the Korean War, as, as, a, as a real civil war at that point.
0: This was, yeah, this is where I was going to kind of go next. There is this period, um, you know, especially from 1948 to 1950, where uh, there's a lot of activity to sort of suppress communist movements in South Korea. And I have seen, uh, you know, some people kind of identify that as really the start uh, of the conflict more so than than the. You know the invasion, quote unquote, in in 1950. Um, can you sort of, uh, yeah, go into some more detail about what was going on in this uh, couple of years, and and what was, you know, how active were these movements, and how how harsh uh, how harshly were they put down by the the South Korean authorities?
1: Yeah, so the kind of. Um... I mean, this is a lot of what uh, Bruce Cummings's work is about, but then there's a number of other more recent scholars as well who have been working on, on this period um, and producing some interesting work, uh, like um, Wang soo for example. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, you have to take this period back a bit further to quite early on in the, um, the U.S. occupation that they began to face quite a lot of opposition, um, I mean, it started really when they, they got off on a very bad foot, even right, right at the beginning when they arrived in September 1945. The U.S. occupation forces basically, you know, set out a proclamation saying we are the law. Right. There can be no other authority here at all. And what that meant in practice was that the people's committees, which were running a lot of administration um, around the country and which had sprung up to replace the Japanese administration, um, you know, this, so these were local committees in villages and towns and cities um, that were not necessarily left-wing in character. They were a they were coalition of nationalists and, and communists and other groups. Um, uh, they were kind of spontaneous or semi-spontaneous um, democratic institutions. And the contrast here is great between the North and the South. In, in the North, the Soviets essentially allowed them to continue, but gradually co-opted them. Um, there's no doubt about about this. They put the people they managed to get the people they wanted elected onto these Committees and gradually took them over In the South the Americans as I said just took this approach to, to say we are the law now there can be no other um, Administrative organs or democratic organs and they essentially uh, declared the abolition of these people's committees um, So that then you know really The opposition to that continued right through to 48, 49. But there were major flare-ups at certain points. Uh, So, for example, in August, sorry, in the autumn, uh, the fall of uh, 1946, you had this big, um, what's often called the Autumn Harvest Uprising. It was a series of strikes um, and demonstrations, particularly focused in the southeast of um, South Korea. And that was the first big a physical challenge to the uh, US occupation. But various things like that continued. And, a- and as time went on, the occupation became more and more repressive towards communists, you know, rounding them up, arresting people and so on. Um, and then once you get into 1948, you have uh, the beginning of this uprising in Jeju. Uh, that really originates uh, Well, there's a number of different origins that I think is probably not worth me going into the great, great details about all the origins of that uprising. But one of the most salient points here is that uh, people in Jeju were particularly incensed and upset by the fact that in May 1948, um, separate elections were taking place for South Korea. And this really was meaning the, the entrenchment of division. You know, up until that point, 46, 47, early 48, people had still thought that there was going to be a reunification. But once the U.S. and the U.N. decided in early 1948 that they would hold these elections and then the Soviets would not participate in them, uh, you know, North Korea would not participate. then And you have separate elections. That meant the entrenchment of division. And that's one of the origins Uh, one of the causes for the um, uprising in Jeju is that people there wanted to boycott these these separate elections.
0: In terms of the actual kind of start of, uh, let's say, the international phase of the conflict uh, in 1950, um, I know there are... Uh, the sort of standard story is that North Korea invaded South Korea and that was, you know, on June 25th, this was the, you know, this is the date that everybody kind of marks as the uh, the start of the war. I, I, I know there are um, arguments that have been made that North Korea, for example, has made uh, that South Korean forces actually were the first to cross the border uh, and kind of, you know, encroached in the North. Do we have... Uh, a, a, a good sense of what actually went on, because obviously these things can get uh, these border issues as we even see today can get very murky. Um, do we have a good sense of what happened uh, around June twenty fifth, nineteen fifty, that actually uh, you know triggered the the escalation into a bigger conflict?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know there, there have been various bits of doubt cast here and there on the on the standard story. I mean, I've, I've seen the. <laughs> I've seen the the North Korean version. I actually went to the um the war memorial museum in Pyongyang in North Korea and they show you they you know the first thing you have to do is to be shown this video which which supposedly proves that the the Americans and the South Koreans started the war and so on. I show, I now show that to my students every year which is quite interesting to <laughs> look at it and try to critique it, you know. Um as an interesting piece of of, of propaganda. But uh there are two ways of looking at this, right? I think did the first question is, did North Korea start the war with an invasion of South Korea on the 25th of June, 1950? And was that a pre-planned, premeditated invasion with the approval of China and the Soviet Union? The answer to that is yes. No, I don't have any doubt about that personally. I think the historical records are now pretty clear. The archives have been opened in, in the Soviet, you know, former Soviet Union and so on. So we know we know that. Uh, the, a second question might be, well, but does that mean that uh, it was simply a case of the North of North Korean aggression against uh, South Korea? No, I would say no, because it's it's you know the, the lead up to the war is much more complicated. We've already talked about how there was this sort of civil war already developing, particularly within South Korea, and. and it, <clears throat> Places like with with the Jeju uprising, but also at the border as well. I mean, there had been border clashes going on through 1949 and into 1950, sometimes quite severe. And both st- both sides had started those border clashes. The South had been starting border clashes. They had been testing each other. They had been carrying out incursions into each other's territory. Uh, this was a border that was already extremely tense and where there was already fighting going on periodically. So. Um, so yeah, that's my answer to it. It's a bit of a complicated answer. I think <laughs> yes, yeah, the North Koreans did start the war. Then they had been planning it for months and months, and they had worked Kim Il Sung had been working for a year to get the permission from Stalin to invade South Korea, and he eventually got it. So that's one side of it. But on the other hand, yes, this was much more complicated, and there was there was already fighting going on, uh, both fighting within South Korea and also fighting at the border as well.
0: How much support did the, uh, these communist, uh, movements in South Korea, uh, if any, how much did, support did they get from, uh, the North Korean government? And, uh, did that, was there a relationship that continued, uh, into the war? Was there sort of a, a communist, uh, Portion, you know, kind of kind of communist, um, you know, movement that that uh, was inside South Korea during during the war. This is another area that I'm obviously ignorant about. But uh, mm. you know, wh- what was the relationship between uh, those communist movements and North Korea? Basically,
1: yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. I think, in some ways, in the end, for the North Korean side, the Korean War was. Was somewhat badly timed because if they had carried out this, you know, a year or, or so earlier, they may have kind of coincided with a peak of guerrilla activity and and uprisings in South Korea. But by the summer of 1950, much of that had been suppressed by uh, Syngman Rhee's counterinsurgency forces in alliance with with the U.S. Um, now, of course, yes, there had been a with, there had been a strong communist movement in <clears throat> south korea so there was a south korean workers party and a north korean workers party and uh, pak on yong who i mentioned earlier was the leader of the south korean workers party but by 48 and into 49 many of the leaders of that organization were having to flee to north korea um then you know in 49 as the as the anti-communism As anti-communism really takes hold in South Korea as an ideology and as a a practice on the ground, you know, which means rounding up thousands of members or Suspected members of the Communist Party forcing them to join a kind of conversion organization called the National Guidance League um, Using the kind of techniques that the Japanese had used against communism and other opposition movements in the past throwing people in jail, etc, etc So by you know, 49 really uh, the strength of communist movement in South Korea had, had declined a lot and the actual ongoing um, um, guerrilla insurgencies in, in Jeju and then subsequently also on the mainland as well had were waning and were being beaten essentially by the counterinsurgency forces. By the time the war began, yes, there was still some, as far as I understand it, there was still some uh, some guerrilla insurgency going on, particularly in the mountainous central area of southern Korea, which is around the mountain called Chirisan. This is a, it kind of the name Chirisan in South Korea almost does have a, an association with partisans for this reason, even to this day. Um, and there's a famous film actually made in the 90s called Nambugun, which is uh, which means like the Southern Army, which is a, which is a film about um, uh, a film about those sort of communist partisan forces, you know, fighting in South Korea behind the lines against the Americans. Um, But you know, aside from that kind of romanticization of these forces, I don't they didn't play a very important role. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Korean War in a way is it's very different, well, utterly different to the Vietnam War in many senses, because it was, you know, the Korean War was this conventional war of conventional forces moving up and down front lines Ah, uh, very very devastating for the civilian population, as I mentioned in that Jacobin article, but not a kind of, you know, village to village guerrilla war kind of uh, scenario like you might see later in 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 Vietnam. Uh,
0: this is that's a very good segue actually to my next question. I, I, as I mentioned um, in the intro before before you joined uh, uh, on the Skype here. Um, in the United States, at least, uh, when you talk about the hot conflicts of the cold war, Vietnam is the one that, that, you know, is, is still the attention grabber. It's the one that, uh, you know, to, when people talk about sort of the, uh, the human toll, uh, of the con of a conflict like that, Vietnam is where most people's minds go, Um, One of the things that I I appreciated about your piece and and I'm hoping without going into like uh, the the kind of detail that you did in the in the piece, uh, which people should go read again, I'll post a link in the in the show description. Um, If you could give give people a sort of scope, uh, kind of an overall sense of just how devastating the war was. Uh, for the Korean people and, and how big a, a sort of, a how much suffering it, it, it caused.
1: Uh, yeah, I think I did go into this in some detail in in, in the article and, and based, um, as I've mentioned before, on quite a lot of new um, research that's been done in the last sort of 10 years or so, a number of um, great books have come out in English about uh the civilian aspect of the Korean War and it's something i mean i always found this very frustrating when i first started teaching these aspects of modern korean history and having to teach the Korean War that this is a war that when you're in korea you realize just the the incredible civilian toll you know it affected everybody and everybody alive now even the grandchildren and so on will know something about what happened in their family to their family um and so on. And yet, if you go, for example, to the the library, uh, the stack in in the library where I work at SOAS, and look at stuff on on the Korean War, you will see like an entire stack of shelves uh, with books on the Korean War. But they're all on, you know, the the international aspects. They're on the military aspects. They're on it. They're, they're on the Korean War from uh, the sort of the Western or European or American point of view. Uh, what the British soldiers did there what the American soldiers. To me, overlooks the number one most important thing to study and to understand about the Korean War, which is as a war on civilians and against Koreans, you know, as a whole in many ways, both North and South. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think a few of the things I mentioned in the article are about the the early stage of the war, which was incredibly mobile, where you had this. This ca- attack and counterattack and, and then a, a counter counterattack and so on. So that the front lines move right up and down the peninsula, you know, pushing waves of refugees before them, destroying towns and cities. Um, and also, of course, the secondary problem you have after that, where you have occupation and reoccupation, where you have a situation where the capital city of South Korea, Seoul, changed hands four times, you then have all the reprisals, you then have all of the questions of collaboration and loyalty and who was a traitor and who wasn't a traitor. And you might have to go through that two or three times over with each, you know, back and forth between each side. So then again, you can see it's a war about civilians. It's not a war fought away on, on the battlefield, uh, although it was as well. But, you know, it's a war for people's minds and for their loyalties. Uh, and it's another reason why it's caused so much death, suffering, but also carried on down the years, um, just incredible divisions within families, within, within villages and so on. Uh, there's a wonderful documentary film that I mentioned in the article called Grandmother's Flower. And I would urge anyone who's interested in the war uh, to and, and, and the civilian dimension of it to watch that documentary. It's absolutely fantastic. It goes into the experience of just one family. In one village, uh, and 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 how the war affected them. Uh, and a second aspect that I talk about in the article is the is the bombing, of course. So, um, I guess, you know, the, the Second World War had been the 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 place in which the Allied forces, particularly the U.S. and Britain, had really perfected and developed this the horrific um, practice of destroying civilian population centers either with firebombs or just intense bombing and then of course with with nuclear weapons at the very end of the pacific war but in the korean war the americans did this again but they did it against a country that actually had no essentially no air defenses no air force Um, and the soviet union although it, it potentially could have come to defend um, North Korea against US bombardment, uh, I think for reasons which we can guess, Stalin didn't want to do that. He didn't want to find himself in World War Three at that particular moment. So really, it was just open season on, on North Korea for throughout almost the whole three years of the war. And this took an incredible toll on civilian life in, in North Korea, particularly. Uh, because basically the, the the front lines of the war were more or less sort of static from the summer of 1951 until the end of the war in, in the summer of 1953. And during that period, the Americans just continually bombarded North Korea uh, until they ran out of, of, of targets. They razed every city, every industrial area, residential districts, ports, railway lines, roads, everything. And then they moved on to things like irrigation dams, hydroelectric dams, uh, and things which then um, caused caused famines because they just, you know helped to destroy the agricultural system of, of North Korea caused disease because they destroyed you know hygiene, uh, sanitation systems um, and so on. So it was really quite I would say quite a genocidal kind of um, bombing campaign. And of course, again, people perhaps know better the bombing campaign against Vietnam or Cambodia. Um, some you know decades later, but uh, many of those sort of things had been already very much uh, practiced in the in the in the Korean War, including a lot of use of napalm as well in the Korean in the Korean War.
0: Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the effect of the war politically, and and maybe all, you know the effect of all the the violence uh, kind of unleashed against civilians politically. Um, of course, you know in the West we we uh, are you know told you know we sort of learn about the uh, the kind of rise of uh, or the the kind of transition I guess in North Korea uh, from a, a, a communist government into something you know this kind of unusual <laughs> political system mm-hmm. where power really rests in the Kim family and it's mm-hmm. it's you know kind of uh i don't i would say quasi monarchical you can correct me if i'm wrong mm-hmm. um and and that sort of coalescing you know behind a, a pretty authoritarian structure. Uh but the same thing happens in South Korea. I mean the you know Syngman Rhee's government was uh pretty authoritarian and then that eventually kind of gives way to military dictatorship which lasts for quite some time. Um and you you write you, or you wrote in the your Jackman piece about the suppression of kind of popular movements, political movements in both North and South Korea uh, during the war. And I wonder, you know, if you could kind of go into um, some detail about, you know, how that played out. And, you know, especially, you know, to the extent that you, you, this was related to uh, a lot of the, the kind of devastation of the conflict and, and uh, what that did to to political, you know, life in, in both uh, both Koreas.
1: Yeah, I think there's no doubt that in both careers, the war helped to uh, consolidate the power of the of of the leader in each case, um, and to consolidate the state, and the security state, and the military. And I think there's there's a phrase uh, now. I wish I can never remember who to attribute qu- quotes to, but anyway, there's a, there's a well-known quote, isn't there, that. Um, Wars make states, right? And this is absolutely true in in both Koreas. I think in in both cases, the war, although it, it 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 put both North and South Korean states in into perilous situations where they were, you know, at some points in danger of disappearing altogether. It also pr- brought them out at the other end with increased powers and infrastructures of state control, um, and also helped both leaders to. Um, eliminate elements of their opposition obviously in the end Kim Il-sung did a much bigger job of that Um, he by the end of the 1950s had eliminated all of the other factions in the communist party and any um, major figures who might have challenged him um, in a sort of imitation of Stalin's purges of the 1930s Uh, I'm not saying that they were identical processes but anyway he he came out at the end unchallenged as, as Stalin did. On the other hand, Isung Man or Seung Man Ri, as he's usually referred to, he he by the end of the 1950s had become a very unpopular politician. He was still in power, but he was actually overthrown in a popular uprising in in 1960. I won't go any more into that because it's another. We could go off on another tangent there, but um, certainly the war, yes, absolutely, the war helped to consolidate the two states. I would say in the case of you know just going back to something you said about North Korea I mean I would hesitate to say that North Korea transitioned from being communist to being something different and very authoritarian I think from the very beginning North Korea was created in the image of Stalin's Soviet Union and that in my mind is in no sense communist it's not the communism that, that was being trying trying to be or attempted to be established by the Bolsheviks after 1917 by Lenin and um, and Trotsky and so on but 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 something quite different right a, a very authoritarian developmentalist
0: state sure i think i where i where i it seems unusual to me is sort of um the the power resting in a in this one family i mean stalin for as authoritarian as as uh, he made things uh, it it seems to me and again i mean I'm, i defer to your uh analysis of this but the 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 Way that power has kind of been passed down from through the Kim family seems different in some sense, and I, I'm uh, interested in how that kind of yeah. came to that, be that way.
1: There's an extent to which you know in the uh, in the early 50s, and you know just after the the end of the, the Korean War, of course, um, Stalin died, and then after that, you know, eventually Khrushchev comes to power in the Soviet Union, and you have this. This attempt or this process of de-Stalinization, the Soviet Union kind of turned its back on, on the, to some extent, on the system that Stalin built and on the very extreme kind of personality cult that he developed around himself. But North Korea, on the other hand, didn't want to do that. I mean, Kim Il-sung took the op- absolutely opposite approach. <laughs> to khrushchev he didn't want he he wanted to build up his own um personality cult he didn't want to turn his back on the stalinist system so he was immediately at odds with the soviet union in the mid-1950s and, and on a number of other issues as well and then of course uh at the end of the 50s beginning of the 60s you have the sino-soviet split the north korea finds itself in the middle of that split He can't really afford to alienate either china or russia it has a border with both of them um, and is reliant on both of them. and But ultimately, it managed to find some space for itself in that new situation uh, in which the, the sort of the communist bloc was split. And I think a lot of this alongside North Korea's kind of, um, how to put it, it, it I think the, 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 these are some of the things that explain the way in which North Korea became almost like a distilled version of Stalinist personality cult and the Stalinist authoritarian or totalitarian system. You know, it, it, it's in a concentrated form, partly because the Cold War itself, in my mind, is in a kind of concentrated form on the on the Korean Peninsula, where you have these two sort of poster children of the two blocks facing off, off against each other in this small piece of land. Um, and I think that created this very concentrated form of, of Stalinism, I think you could say, perhaps.
0: So my last question to kind of, um, you know, bring us to a, a close here is it, it's is very speculative. And if it's, you know, too speculative, please feel free not to answer. But cool. um, uh, we've talked about we've been talking about the partition and, you know, the effect of the partition, the causes of the partition, the the sort of, you know, war that followed the partition. Um, the other, of course, you know, famous case of of Cold War partition or post-World War II partition uh, was Germany. Uh, and we saw at the sort of end of the Cold War uh, the reunification of Germany, which uh, seemed to go okay, but it has left kind of lingering uh, problems you know that that even today i mean the rise of the far right is basically uh you know one of the causes in in germany has been sort of the the marginalization of east germany economically and the struggles that uh still to this day are sort of uh you know kind of underpinning um that movement and and you know still are are salient kind of uh, issues you know in the unification process and that's without having fought uh, a war, you know, b- between uh, East and West Germany, there was obviously tension, but there was nothing like uh, the Korean War. If by some, you know, miraculous <laughs> development, um, the, the political, the kind of overarching political issues could be resolved. Um, do you think at this point, uh I, The two Koreas could actually come together again. And and what would that look like? What kind of problems would there be, if any? Like, I I wonder, uh, you know, again, if it would be almost miraculous to kind of get to that point even. But but what would it look like if, if it happened?
1: I think it would be incredibly difficult—an incredibly difficult process to get there. And then once you did get to the sort of stage of reunifying, that would still be incredibly difficult, and and would last uh, a long time. Um, <clears throat> you know, in, uh, comparisons with with Germany are interesting, and there have you know there's a small kind of cottage industry developed in within academia. You know, people who look at Korea and Korean unification, or people who compare with Germany, my feeling about that comparison is that there are similarities, but there are also great differences. Because I think ne- neither the enmity nor the competition between the two Germanies was at the same level as that between the two Koreas. Uh, neither, um, you know, Germ- the two Germanies were never as cut off from each other as the two Koreas have been for the last well seventy plus years. Um, you know, they were never in such intense competition. They actually, you know, from I guess was it the '70s onwards, they began collaborating to quite an extent. Um, there was a, quite a lot of contact, civilian contact between the two countries. They drifted apart, to, to be sure, um, socially, culturally, economically. But and and that and that, as you said, the legacy of that is still there in the two Germanies, But never to the extent that the two Koreas have have. Drifted apart. So you're you're talking about a a, a process difficulty of which would be a gre- much greater magnitude, I think, than than the than the unification of the two Germans. And of course, you add on to that. You've now had another uh, an additional thirty years, right? So so e- even if um, you know thirty years ago there was still quite a there was already quite a big difference between the two Germans and the two Koreas. Now that you know, I mean, another thirty years has passed by and Things uh, and 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 they've grown even further apart, I would say, during that uh, period. Um, and we can look in, we can get a sense of some of the problems by looking at um, the fact that there are sort of microcosms of reunification here and there already. I mean, for example, there are now, I think, around thirty thousand North Korean refugees who live in South Korea. Um, you know, they they automatically have the status of. <clears throat> um, uh, of, of Of South Korean citizens basically, this is an interesting kind of <clears throat> uh, fact that uh, obviously there's a huge Korean diaspora around the world. there are maybe two or three million I think Koreans ethnic Koreans living in, in, in the US but and they can go and visit South Korea, but they can't turn up and say, <clears throat> well, I'm a Korean so therefore give me a, a South Korean passport. If a North Korean arrives in South Korea they automatically get a, a South Korean Um, nationality and South Korean passport and this is a sort of relic of the Cold War kind of competition between the two states that neither side really recognised each other as a bona fide um, uh, state Um, but yes sorry going back to my main point which is that that, uh, you know you have now already this sort of reunification in miniature with quite a large number of North Koreans living in South Korea but their experience is generally very bad I mean, they are treated badly. they are at the bottom of society, often even below other immigrant groups in South Korea. Um, uh, you know in terms of poverty indexes, um, they're discriminated against um, for their accent, for their way they talk, dress, their culture, and so on. Uh, so if that's anything to go by, then the future of a much you know mass- much more massive project of reuniting those two peoples into one state and one country would be you know just an enormous, enormous um task. Not impossible, but um I I find it hard to imagine the circumstances in which it would happen and could happen uh in a in a successful way.
0: So uh, so in a sense there was no basis for partition before the war, but thanks to uh the US and the Soviets Uh, they've now created a partition that that didn't exist. That's so mission accomplished, (laughs) basically.
1: I think it would be fair to say that there are not just two different, you know, political states or, you know, um, there are also now two different nationalities in many ways, two different peoples with different cultures who have, who have lived separately and grown apart. And I think, I think South Koreans particularly find it very hard to, understand how, you know, they, they've been brought up to think that there's, there are only bad things about North Korea, right? That it's it's a horrible, evil place, um, which has essentially imprisoned a part of the population of Korea for the last 75 years. And, um, and, and, and there's nothing good about it. But I, I think that's a that's a mindset that South Koreans will absolutely have to get out of if there's any prospects of reunification, because for North Koreans, there will be many things that they value about their their country and their culture and and the way they do things. That doesn't mean to say that that they would value their political system or their leadership or the the systems of repression and security and so on. But um, but the problem is that in the Cold War conflict, all of those things have got bundled up together with with other things. Um,
0: do, am I making any sense? Yeah. No. I, I mean, that's that's yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh. As you say, I mean, which I hadn't even thought about, although it makes perfect sense that that there's uh, not only are the circumstances of the partition different, but it's been in place for a lot longer uh, than the partition in in Germany was. So, yeah, it's had more time to kind of calcify. I think that that's that's a that's a good point. That is a good way of putting it. Yeah. I'd like to thank Owen Miller again for coming on the program, and I'd like to apologize to him and to you uh, because there were a few more minutes there of some crosstalk, the normal kind of things that you say at the end of an interview, thank you for coming on the program, and uh, I'd love to have you back sometime, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that due to a combination of a not-so-great uh, Skype connection that um, really kind of fritzed out toward the end there. Uh, and my own complete lack of capability as a, a, an audio engineer or producer, uh, I had to just cut that entire section. So again, I apologize uh, to Owen Miller, and I apologize to you guys for the abrupt ending to that interview. Um, I will post uh, Owen's piece uh, from Jacobin in the show description. You can check that out um i i need to end this show on a sad note um i recorded this interview uh last week i'm recording uh this actual last concluding bit um on uh, july 21st uh and it's just uh, been a day now since uh, Michael Brooks, the the host of the Michael Brooks Show and uh, producer slash co-host of the Majority Report with Sam Cedar, uh, passed away. I, I assume most of you have have heard that news. Uh, passed away of a sudden medical condition. Uh, I'm not sure what the details were. Um, it, it seems to have been something that 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 happened very very suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, Michael was a tremendous, tremendous person and a tremendously gifted writer, um, commentator, podcaster. Um, I knew him. I, you know, There's been an outpouring of uh, just wonderful kinds of uh, memories and, and thoughts about him as a person and about his career and, and uh, the way that he touched so many people. While he was alive, um, I I can't pretend or, or to have known him as well as uh, the people who worked with him and, and you know were in, in contact with him on a uh, a daily basis. Uh, I, he was my friend uh, as much as you can be friends with somebody in a completely virtual <laughs> sense, which is a, a sort of peculiarly modern thing um i i appeared on his show a few times i had him on this podcast a couple of times um and found him always to be just unfailingly kind and generous uh, thoughtful uh, funny uh, all the things that you've you've heard people say about him all the good things that you've heard people say about him uh, over the last couple of days uh, are true in in my experience uh, Michael was extremely thoughtful and, and extremely compassionate and, and uh, I think those are th- that last one in, in particular is a, 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 a tendency that's sorely needed uh, in this world uh, that we don't have nearly enough of. Um, he had the ability to empathize and sympathize with people. No matter where they were, no matter what their situation was, um, and, and I really do feel like we've lost that in society to some degree. And, and it's uh, for people like Michael, it's, it's very special to have them in the world kind of showing us uh, that there's a better way to, to act and a better way to relate to people. Um, he was so prolific. I mean, somebody who uh, just—I always marveled at at how much he was able to do. It was just kind of stunning. And when I would talk to him, you know, when I we'd talk about you know doing an interview or uh, you know just kind of text off off you know off the air, you know, uh, or you know uh, message on Twitter or anything like that, he'd always. Uh, ask me like, hey, did you catch the the show yesterday? Did you catch this interview that we did this week? Uh, and a lot of the time, I and mean, some of the time at least, uh, I could say yes. Um, uh, some of the time, though, I mean, he just was so prolific, and he turned out he turned out so much uh, amazing work. Uh, that it was too much for me to keep up with. So I would, you know, uh, if he said, I really think you'd dig this, and he'd, you know, uh, send me a link to something, so I would check it out. I, I wish I had been able to sort of stay on top of his show more than I was. But, uh, man, he was just so prolific. I keep saying that word, but uh, it, it was really amazing. And and the, the focus of his uh, attention was so, I think, unique and and so important uh, in politics and political kind of uh, common commentary Um, Michael didn't just focus on what was happening inside the United States he was focused on uh the condition of people living all over the world and uh, and improving the condition of people who lived all over the world. It was his cause. I mean, he was so, um, you know, so enamored with uh, Lula in, in Brazil and and you know, was really kind of very aware and conscious of, of uh, left wing movements all over the place, especially I think in in Latin America. Um, and it was really just, just, um, you know, had this recall of, of details about these movements and their history and, uh, sort of, it was just, it was just, uh, incredibly impressive to, to be around and to, to, uh, talk with him and, and share that. And, uh, I'm just devastated. I, I think a lot of people are, and, and, and again, I didn't know him as well as, Uh, as well as many, but it's just devastating for somebody um, so young and, uh, you know, who touched so many people's lives to be gone uh, with no warning, really, and um, I'm very sad. I I said in the uh, newsletter a couple of days ago, we need more Michael Brookses in the world, and unfortunately, uh, we have one less than we had, Uh, a few days ago and and that's uh very very sad and um you know my my thoughts and and best wishes go out to his family and to his loved ones uh and uh you know i just uh we won't forget you know rest rest in peace michael you you will not be forgotten um and on that note um thank you all for for listening and um Until next time, uh, take care of yourselves, take care of your families and your loved ones, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.